welcome to Addicted to Murder. I'm Courtney, a true crime enthusiast and licensed professional counselor. And I'm Trisha, and my dog Mulder is full prick. What does that mean to be full prick? That's when both of his ears stick straight up or are erect. When he was young, he was only half prick because only one ear stuck up. Unfortunately, because of this condition, Mulder cannot be a show dog. Oh, that's too bad. He's very cute, though. Yeah, he's upset that he can't show off his stuff, though, but it is Mm -hmm. what it is. Right. Well, we finished up with Ted last week, and uh, I feel pretty good about what we did. You know, we tried to do the best we could with the information we had, and of course, you know, to everyone's listening, this is our interpretation of what happened, so... Absolutely. Yeah, and we want to thank all of our listeners for the the kind comments and and feedback that we've gotten um, so far. Yes. Thank you. And I did get some feedback from my mom who told us that she was kind of surprised we didn't mention this, but we didn't know about it, that she watched part of a trial or she wasn't sure where she saw it or read it, but it makes sense with Ted that when Ted was acting as a lawyer, he was questioning a police officer who was on the stand and he was questioning over and over and over again the, the police officer to give him details, gory details, of the crime scenes. He wanted very graphic depictions of everything, and um, it makes sense. Don't you think, Courtney? It absolutely makes sense. Um, what a special, great way for Ted to relive his crimes mm-hmm. and get to kind of get off in court while seemingly doing something innocent. Right. Really stroking his narcissistic ego. And he's just a piece of shit. So long, Ted. Yes. Okay. Well, anyways, we're moving on to a new case today. Um, It's probably going to just be a two-parter. There's a lot less to go on with this one, even though he killed... A lot of people and kind of recently I had not heard about this until you know the past few months Courtney why don't you tell us who you picked yes so I chose to talk about serial killer Robert Willie Picton also known as the pig farm killer yes and as we'll see going through this um, discovery of Willie Picton he is very different from Ted Bundy he is gross looking. He smells. He's got a low IQ. And yeah, he's just he's nasty. I wouldn't want to touch him with a 10 foot pole. Sort of the opposite of Ted. Yes, for mm-hmm. sure. The other end of the serial killer spectrum, if you will. Right, right. And so part of why I chose this killer this time is that. His crimes actually happened not too far away from where I grew up. Um, So I grew up kind of up near the the Canadian border in Washington. And, you know, Willie Pickton lived kind of just, you know, 30 to 50 miles over the border, kind of towards Vancouver. Um, So I could probably have driven to his farm in like less than two hours. Creepy. Very creepy. Okay. Well, if you guys have any questions, comments, etc., as always, you can email us at addictedtomurderpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can give us a comment or send us a message at our Instagram or Facebook page, which is at 
Addicted to M podcast. And Courtney manages all the social media. She's great at it. She likes to put up pictures and stuff like that. So check it out. It's pretty interesting. All right. So here we go. Robert Willie Picton was born on October 24th, 1949. He was reportedly born with the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck and he required resuscitation. The family believed he may have gotten brain damage because of the lack of oxygen. He was the middle child of his parents, Leonard and Louise. He had an older sister named Linda and a younger brother named Dave. He was evaluated as having an IQ of 86, which is on the lower end of the scale. An average IQ ranges between 85 and 115, so he's right there at the end. Willie was placed into special education services at school, and he stayed in those until he dropped out at age 14. He was described as quiet and reserved, and when he did talk, he had a high-pitched voice. And get this, y'all. He had a stutter. The stutter is back. There it is. The stutter is back again. Courtney, I wonder how many of these killers we will discover to actually have this stutter. Uh, It's new info to me, but we're seeing a pattern here. Remember in our Ted Bundy series, we explained that stutters are the result of one area of the brain actively defending itself against trauma. And while doing that, certain other areas of the brain are not developing at a normal rate, causing possible deficits in speech. So Courtney, how would this lower IQ affect Willie? Yeah, so probably in some different ways. First, I just want to point out that developing a stutter isn't always attributed to trauma. That's definitely one way it could happen. It could also be attributed to kind of the brain damage that he may have experienced. Okay, so it might be different in his case. Yes. Okay. Right. Um, but it's still weird that he has one and he ends up being a serial killer. Yes, it is. <laughs> so an IQ of 86 doesn't mean that Willie was technically considered developmentally disabled um, as the cutoff score for that distinction is at least below 80, sometimes below 70, depending on what kind of diagnosis you're looking at. But he, it definitely could have impacted him growing up. So it could have made it so that he had a harder time learning new things, difficulty understanding more complex ideas, and he would probably seem to be emotionally younger than his actual age. Now... I really wish that we had more information about the testing that was done to determine his intelligence, as there are actually several different subscales in IQ testing that provide more information about specific areas that might be more affected. For example, you know, research suggests that people who have lower scores in areas of like verbal language and verbal processing, as well as in areas of like inhibition and impulse control may have a likely high, a higher likelihood of engaging in violent behavior. Okay, that makes sense. Well, the family lived on a large farm in the town of Port Coquitlam, British Columbia. It's about 30 minutes away from Vancouver. While the farm produced some crops, it's mostly known for raising large groups of pigs, and at times they had over 700 pigs wandering around that property. Probably smelled pretty bad. His mother, Louise, was well known for being a dogged worker who cared little about cleanliness or hygiene. It's reported that the pigs and chickens were allowed to wander in and out of the house at will, and visitors described the house as being filthy with dirt, feces, food, dirty clothes, furniture all over the place. I imagine dirty dishes, like gross. 
Louise expected her two sons to work on the farm before and after school every day. As a result, Willie and his brother would be sent to school in the same clothes that they were out in the pig pens in, and they were mercilessly, mercilessly made fun of for being stinky and gross, and they gross, and they did earn the nickname Stinky Piggy. It didn't help that in the few and far between times that Willie was expected to bathe himself, his mom insisted he take baths and not showers, and due to this, he developed a phobia of showers that lasted his whole life. The only family member who didn't face this was his sister, who lived with relatives and went to school in Vancouver. It's also reported that his mom would lock the kitchen cupboards, so Willie and his brother would at times have to dig through the trash of a nearby hospital to get food. Courtney, can you explain a little bit about how phobias are developed? As we'll see later on, Willie did indeed fear showers. Yeah, so phobias are generally formed in sort of one or of two ways um, or in combination. So sometimes it's when a person experiences something traumatic related to the things that they fear. Um, And sometimes it's that they're never exposed to it, but are taught that this thing is bad or something to be scared of. For example, to develop a phobia of dogs, a person may either have experienced a time when they got bit by a dog, or maybe they were told over and over by their parents that dogs could bite and to keep your distance. So I have a learned phobia, or sorry, a phobia brought on by not experiencing it, but you know, the other way. When I was little, I remember, and it's a good phobia to have, it it was ingrained in my mind that power lines were just the scariest thing on earth. And to this day, I still don't like walking under power lines or, you know, being near them. And I have this idea in my mind that one's going to fall down and get me. I've never been shocked. I've never had anything to do with power lines. But so I kind of couldn't see how that can happen. Sorry, that was just a side note. Do you have any phobias? Um, not any that would actually meet criteria, but me and spiders are not friends. We'll just go. That's like a common. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But, you know, in Willie's case, right, we know that his mother only ever let him take baths. So he was not exposed to showers when he was young. And I would guess that something she told him, you know, made him think that showers were bad in some way. Um, And then kind of on top of that, there are reports that his brother and other farm workers would sometimes intentionally, like, spray him with a hose to get him upset, and this would just kind of confirm all of his negative feelings about showers. Yeah, and I bet his baths were just soup. I'm just thinking of being covered in pig filth and farm filth and then sitting in that water, and it sounds like he didn't bathe very often, so it would have been just, it's just probably so gross, but oh well. While there's not much information about Leonard, his dad, except that he was pretty much a hands-off kind of dude, he was reportedly not that interested in the actual farming, and he handled mostly the business side of the farm. He was not involved with the children. He left that to his wife to do the parenting. However, he was feared by the boys, and he would get very angry and was physically abusive. Willie talked often about getting beat and how it was just something that he and everyone had to go through. There is also reports that when Willie wanted to hide from someone or something, he would do so in the gutted carcass of a hog. Courtney, how would this type of neglect and abuse impact Willie? 
Why would a young child choose a gutted animal as a safe place to hide? In many ways, neglect, although often kind of overlooked by the general public, can be much more damaging than other types of outright abuse. And it's interesting here, as Willie's mom was present, and many reports say that they were pretty close, yet she was also very neglectful towards him. She didn't take care of him as one would expect a mother to do. There was not safe shelter and or consistently enough food, nor was there a sense that she cared much about his well-being given the state of the home and his person. So when you're a kid and your most basic needs are not being met, you have to learn other ways to meet them yourself, such as stealing, lying, or being sneaky, kind of like sneaking over to get food from the hospital trash cans. And then as for the physical abuse, we can hear in Willie's own words that he believed that he deserved it and that it was normal for people to hurt each other. And so when a kid's only or their main memories of their father are about him hurting them, it also paints a picture of what fatherhood is and combined with his mom's sort of indifference about it could create a belief that there was nowhere to be safe at home. And if the house isn't safe, Willie had to find somewhere else to feel safe. And so being around the pigs would be kind of second nature to him at this point. And to just kind of put it bluntly, nobody was going to come looking for him inside of a dead pig. So I've got a couple thoughts. And this happened in the 50s, 50s, 60s, right? Right. Today... If we had a child come into our place of work and they were as filthy as Willie reportedly was, if they lived in a house where animals were running around and there were feces and all this everywhere, if they reported being abused the way that he thought everybody was being abused, he thought that everybody went through what he went through, we would get DHS involved. That would be something... Am I right, Courtney, that, that could, those kids could be taken out of that home? Absolutely. Um, in today's world, there's no way that if somebody knew what was going on, that those kids would have continued to live there. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, and then secondly, um, the fact that he finds comfort in hiding in a gutted animal, it just kind of shows you that he's not fearing gore, death, uh, you know, all that stuff. He's immune to it, I would think. So we have a young kid who's absolutely not bothered by gutted animals and blood and death. Just, just something I, I is, it's polar opposite of me. Um, so that's just something to think about. All be part of his normal everyday life. Yeah. Yeah. Willie often referred to one specific traumatic moment that changed him. When he was 12, he saved up enough of his own money and he bought a calf at the local livestock auction. He loved this calf very much and he wanted it as a pet. He would spend all of his spare time with the cow. He even wanted to sleep with it at night. One day he got home from school and he couldn't find his cow anywhere and was told by a family member, go look in the barn. When he got to the barn, he saw his pet strung up and butchered, dead. Willie was heartbroken. He wouldn't talk to anyone for about four days, and he remained angry with his parents for a very long time. Courtney, what kind of, or what would this kind of trauma do to a kid like Willie? 
This story, I just have to say, it makes me so sad. Yeah. Um, so I'm, you know, imagining a 12-year-old Willie. He's ignored by most people, bullied by the kids at school, has no real friends and no real role models of loving and caring relationships. So he buys a cow and kind of imprints on it like baby animals would do and has only positive feelings about it. And then the cow, being so young itself, imprints on Willie to a certain degree, who is kind to it and loves it so much that Willie finally feels like he has something to love that loves him back. And then suddenly, that's gone. It's taken away by his own parents and without any regard for his feelings about it at all. So this would be such a huge betrayal of trust, a huge loss and heartbreak, and an experience that would shape his thoughts about death. You know, things like death can happen to anyone, anytime. Death is everywhere. Death isn't a big deal. And everything you love will die eventually. And so I personally believe that this event could have been kind of a turning point in Willie's life that kind of shaped him and allowed him to become the killer that he eventually was. Would his low IQ have any, um, would he, would he react differently to this if he was more of an average intelligence or do you think that really doesn't play into his reaction at all? Um, I think he probably would have had a larger reaction. Um, one in that, you know, that understanding that he has of, of love and emotions is more sort of simple Mm -hmm. and therefore really strong. Mm -hmm. Right, you know, think of a, a four-year-old whose pet goldfish dies, yeah. and to us adults, it's like, big deal, it's mm-hmm. a goldfish, but like... Yeah, his parents were like, big deal, it's meat. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, and so, he probably would have had a hard time understanding if there was other context to why his calf got killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he might not understand if it was, oh yeah, we need the meat for this, or we needed it for the money. Um, he would just be mad. Okay. It is sad. After leaving school, Willie worked full-time at the farm and eventually started an apprenticeship with a local butcher, where he spent all day slaughtering and butchering the pigs and cows that were grown on the farm. He was generally outcast by people his own age and didn't really have any friends or romantic partners to speak of during this time. Throughout his life, he did have female companions who lived with him, but they reported that there was no sexual component to the relationships. He had a very strong connection to his brother's girlfriend and baby mama, Sandy. He is described as worshipping her, and he even asked her to marry him once when she and Dave had broken up. She, of course, said no. Courtney, how do you think this no answer to his question of marriage affected Willie? You know, I think on the one hand, it may have been expected, right, and fall in line with probably other rejections that he'd gotten from women throughout his life. He's used to it. Right. But at the same time, he did have a different kind of relationship with Sandy, right? She was, you know, with his brother for a long time, lived with them, had children, um, all in the same house where Willie lived with them as well. And so he did know her a lot better. So it probably would have been a little bit more hurtful, to say the least, um, hearing that rejection from her. 
Well, he and his brother continued to take care of the farm together until his parents died in 1978, when Willie was around 30 and his brother was a little bit younger than him. In his mom's final will, Louise gave the farm and money from property sales primarily to Willie's siblings, Dave and Laura. This upset him greatly. Uh, He was older than Dave, so one would think that, if anything, he would be over Dave in, um, you know, getting anything. So he was also the only one really interested in continuing farming. Additionally, Willie was given an immediate payment of $20,000 with the rest of his share of the estate to be held in a trust by his siblings until he turned 40. So they didn't even trust him with his own money. They trusted his younger brother with his money. His siblings were immediately given access to their shares of about 250000 each. They did let Willie stay at the farm. Oh, how sweet. As he did most of the work, and his brother began to focus more on other projects in construction. Eventually, they sold off much of the land to developers in the late 80s for millions of dollars. I think it was like $5.4 million to develop houses. Do you agree with me that he probably was pissed off that, you know, his little brother got more than he did? He wasn't trusted with his own. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Doesn't seem fair. I mean, yeah, it's it's not fair. Right. Well, around this time, there began to be a lot of police interest in the Picton brothers as Willie's brother and him, by extension, became actively engaged with the Hells Angels biker gang. While Willie mostly flew under the radar as the quiet but weird brother, Dave got himself into all sorts of trouble, including charges for assault, attempted murder, and other drug charges. As a teen, Dave had been convicted in juvenile court for vehicular manslaughter after he may or may not have intentionally drove a truck into another teen who was walking on the road and killing him. There... I guess this kid was walking on a wide open road. There was plenty of room for Dave to get past him, but he hit him head on. So many people think he did it on purpose. Reportedly, Dave told his mother right away what he had done. And rather than mom contacting the police or EMS, she pushed the body into a ditch and told Dave to go get their mechanic and get the truck repaired, essentially covering up the whole crime. So this is the role model that Willie had when it came to valuing human life and handling problems. Courtney, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, essentially, the lesson that Willie could have taken away from this event is that lives don't really matter. And it was already established that animal lives didn't matter, as is the nature of a farm that produces animals for slaughter. But now it also includes that human lives don't matter. And as for how to handle problems, the the message that I would have received, and I assume Willie received, is we're just going to pretend the problem doesn't exist and hide all the evidence. So this total disregard for life and death can be seen later for sure in the way that Willie would kill and dispose of his victims' bodies. So at this point, Courtney, what diagnosis, if, if Willie were to come to you for therapy, what diagnosis would you give him? So there would be kind of two things that I would be interested in kind of exploring more if I were to be his therapist. The first one is looking more into potential intellectual disabilities or learning disabilities, right? So his IQ may have been within normal range, but he could have also struggled with language processing or social understanding or, uh, you know, a whole sort of mess of other 
smaller kind of deficits that could have definitely impacted him. So first thing I would have done as his therapist is get another psychological evaluation to kind of get that figured out. Um, but I think even, even more important than that and more devastating than that is what I would call um, complex developmental trauma. And so this isn't technically a diagnosis in the DSM yet, but it is kind of widely accepted as something that exists within the mental health field. And essentially, complex developmental trauma is used to report the significant impacts of prolonged, ongoing, chronic trauma throughout childhood and development. So things like long-term neglect, hunger, physical and emotional abuse, um, kind of anything that happens over and over and over for years and years, it kind of all adds up to be just as, if not more damaging than, say, like a single event that causes a post-traumatic stress disorder um, reaction. And so if we think of, you know, Willie's life, he clearly experienced trauma kind of his whole life, starting not just with his birth, but all through his growing up and even into his adult life. So just to remind everyone, the DSM-5 is the diagnostic, I can't remember what it stands for, go ahead and tell them. It's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, 5th edition. And basically it's, um, it is the book that mental health providers use that talks about all the different type of mental health and psychiatric conditions that are currently recognized in the field. When do you think the DSM-6 will be out with new conditions? Well, I think they're probably working on it. Mm -hmm. Um, The 5 came out while I was in grad school, so about like 10 years ago. And usually about every like 15 to 20 years, they come out with a new one. So Exciting. Exciting. Yes. Okay. Well, when Willie grew up and Dave grew up, they frequented Vancouver's um, area. I can't remember if it was East Vancouver. Sorry, I apologize. I'll have to look that up. Um, anyways, it was where all the hookers and drug addicts hung out. And they got hookers a lot. That's kind of how they rolled. And Willie was fine with that for a while, paying for sex. Um, but between 1978 and 2001... 65 women had started to vanish in downtown Vancouver, British Columbia. Most of these women were sex workers, drug addicts, indigenous, or otherwise considered to be marginalized in some way. Unfortunately, when families of these women would report their missing person, the cases would often be dismissed with officials citing, we don't have time to look for hookers and drug addicts. Perhaps if these missing person cases had been taken seriously, dozens of lives would have been saved. And um, in the pig farm, there was um, a report that they did when they finally started noticing this pattern of women being missed, where they were where they were comparing um, different years of women missing. And like prior to 1996, two women were missing. You know, it was like very small amounts of never missing, and then boom, 
35 women missing, you know, 20 women missing. Like it just became this huge, obvious number of women that were missing, but it took a long time before they even noticed or cared. So anyhow, um, in 1996, the, that was just something to give you a little bit about what's going on in the back story. Just want to say that because we're still talking about some other stuff. In 1996, the Picton brothers created a nonprofit charity called the Piggy Palace Good Time Society, in which they claimed that they would run all kinds of events to raise charity money for local organizations. But what actually happened here were raves and parties, and there were lots of sex workers, and there was lots of drugs to be sold. And their events were very popular, and upwards of 2,000 people would attend, including members of the biker gang, the Hells Angels. Drugs were everywhere. Um, Willie stated later on that he never drank or did drugs, but he would supply addicts with drugs and money to get drugs. This would later lead to many folks looking the other way um, when they saw disturbing things on the farm because they needed Willie's drugs and Willie's money. And, you know, addiction does crazy stuff to people. So this all took place in a converted slaughterhouse, and women started disappearing from these parties. Sometimes they'd leave with Willie to go to his trailer where he where he claimed he had drugs, you know, for them to entice them to come with him. So Courtney, look at this change. The Picton brothers went from social outcasts with really no friends and nicknames like Stinky Piggy to throwing huge parties and seemingly having connections to drugs and money and biker games, and it made them very popular. What do you think this new attention did to Willie? Now, I'd imagine that Willie would likely have felt a little bit lost and overwhelmed at first. You know, having grown up pretty isolated and already feeling different from his peers, it would not be far-fetched to think that he kind of lacked social skills. Um, So he was described even as an adult as quiet and weird, and he mostly stayed kind of off to the side or in the role of, like, serving alcohol and things at at these parties. Um... And so when we think of the attention that he was getting from women, right, most of whom were addicts or sex workers or in some ways, um, you know, attached to the Hells Angels, it's very possible that these women had been treated terribly by most of the other men at the parties. Um, You know, it's well documented that women involved with biker gangs were often seen as less than and very often subjected to physical and sexual violence, including sex trafficking. And so compared to that, they may have been drawn towards Willie, who, at least on the surface, appeared kind and non-threatening. Right, and they would, these old ladies, right, that's what the bikers, Mm -hmm. I don't know, um, would also take advantage of him. They would, you know, give him some sob story and tell him that he ne- they needed $10,000 for this, that, and the other. Not just the women, the men too. And he would give in and he would give them big ch- chunks of change. Um, I'm not sure if it was because he wanted to stay, you know, the cool guy and he wanted people to need him. I'm not sure if it was that or, or what. But in a way, he bonded these people to him through their need. And we'll see that later on um, that it kind of it kind of um, works both ways they're getting something from willie that they want and in return he's getting silence you know about what happens on the farm right and then if you also look at kind of willie's role models for how do you treat women you know they included his abusive father his violent and womanizing brother 
and the men at these parties, right? And so this is a place where if he had some cognitive delays, it could have really impacted, you know, his understanding of the world and um, kind of prevented him from questioning the morality of treating women this way. Um, and so he may have just thought like, again, this was all normal. Like this is how you treat women. Um, and then sort of, he took it that one step farther once, you know, based on his own desires after a while. Right. Um, you know, there are rumors that he had killed women prior to when we know of. So I can't say for sure this is his first, uh, attack, but we do There is a, um, okay, so in March 23rd, 1997, Willie picked up a prostitute in Vancouver. Her name uh, is Wendy Aestetter, Aestetter, I'm not sure how to say it, I apologize, and uh, took her back to his farm where, you know, one thing led to another and they're in a knife fight. He slaps on a handcuff on her hand and uh, tries to stab her, but she fights back. She sees a, it was like a butcher knife on the counter. She grabs her own knife. They stab each other multiple times before she gets out and she runs to the road. She flags down a car. Um, They take her to the local hospital. She's treated there and Willie himself needs medical attention and he goes to that same hospital and he's treated there at the same time. Well, they find a handcuff key in Willie's pocket that just so happens to fit Wendy's handcuff upstairs. So to me, this is like slam dunk case, right? You tried to kill her. Here's the evidence in your pocket. But he was charged at first with attempted murder, but the charges were dropped um, because the courts didn't think Wendy would be a competent witness because she was an addict. They believe Stinky Piggy, who said she attacked him when he picked her up for hitchhiking, or at least they didn't believe that she would be able to be a, a witness that would um, a jury would believe. Courtney, I, do you have anything to say um, on how the man justifies turning away this lady because she's considered less than believable? Any comment on the bias in the situation and if the courts were justified in dropping these charges? Well, you know, there is documented evidence that the police in the Vancouver area and probably many other areas around this time were blatantly dismissive of violence against women in general. And then especially so when it came to violence against women who are or are seen as addicts, sex workers, or indigenous women. So, you know, the justifications they use are that someone who is a drug addict Maybe they don't remember clearly what happened when they were high. Maybe they're lying to avoid getting in trouble for, you know, doing sex work or being on drugs. Um, Or the the go-to is that they're living a, quote, high-risk lifestyle and somehow brought this violence on themselves. And so, you know, all of this, of course, is sort of boiled down to the belief of those in power that these women are disposable and their lives don't matter, right? So Wendy wasn't the perfect victim, you know, to put on the stand. She did have an addiction. She was doing sex work. Um, And so because of that, the police and the prosecutor kind of felt like the jury wouldn't believe her. 
And if the jury's not going to believe her without them actually having to do some work, then the case isn't even worthwhile to take to trial. That's bullshit. It is. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I get... Okay, only only us women, I guess, totally understand this. But this is... (laughs) He had the key in his pocket. I mean, what more evidence do you need? I don't care. I don't care if she's an addict. That should have been evidence enough. Absolutely. And, you know, any human being who has compassion for others can see that, like, that's not a good reason. Right. Okay, well, I think that's where we're going to stop for the day. Yeah. Does that sound like a good good thing to you? Okay. So when we come back next week, we will go through the murders and everything else with Stinky Piggy, Willie Picton. Do you have anything you want to say before we uh, close up shop? Um, not yet. Just stay tuned because the wildest parts are still to come. Okay. Okay. See you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.